On September 19, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Michael Enright, Director, Enright, Scott & Associates, and Professor, School of Business at the University of Hong Kong. Michael's book is titled Developing China, The Remarkable Impact of Foreign Direct Investment. The seminar was moderated by Bill Overholt, Asia Center Fellow at Harvard University. This event was co-sponsored by the Harvard University Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies. For more information about the Ash Center, please visit ash.harvard.edu. The subject of foreign direct investment in China is extraordinarily important and extraordinarily contentious. And I'll just say a few words uh, to underline those points before I introduce Michael. Interestingly, the two most provocative books about foreign direct investment in China are both by a Harvard Business School alumni. The first one, and they say exactly opposite things. The first one was by Yasheng Huang back in 2002 called Selling China, Foreign Direct Investment in China. He said that China's excessive dependence on foreign direct investment uh, drove out local ownership and, and local control and uh, generally detracted from, from China's development. I wrote a review of that, which a diplomat would call Frank. That led to another famous article by Yasheng Huang and Tarun Khanna in Foreign Policy magazine that said that India will always beat China because India has lots of global brands and China has none. Because China is so dependent on foreign investment, it wasn't going to develop its own brands. At the request of the editors of Foreign Policy, I wrote a rebuttal to that. I'm not going to pretend not to have opinions on this subject. And as of this year, China had, according to the Financial Times Index, 11 of the top 100 global brands, and, and India had none. So we have an extreme poll. Michael, on the other hand, is going to tell us that a, a very large proportion, both of GDP and of employment, comes because of, of foreign direct investment. And China has tailored that very carefully to fulfill Chinese interests. Everything about foreign investment in China has been controversial. In 2007, Joe Studwell wrote a famous book called China Dream, where he said the, the, the fantasy of foreign investors, especially Americans, uh, that someday you'd sell a billion widgets to China was an old and silly fantasy. Unfortunately, by the time the book came out, Coke had already, was already selling a billion Cokes a year, and Unilever was selling a billion pieces of soap a year. But that deeply affected U.S. policy through his staffer, Steve Yates. Cheney, Vice President Cheney, became a big fan of the idea that foreign investment in China was a waste of time. Senator Schumer and others have put up an official document saying that China excludes foreign investment from almost all sectors. Senator Schumer has a degree from 
a doctorate from Harvard Law School sometimes interests overwhelm knowledge. I've had occasion to do some research in these areas. Even in the most sensitive sector of banks, the portion of, of foreign investment in China is about twice that of Japan. Korea and Japan are far more difficult places to invest. And there's a whole literature saying that decisions on foreign investment and much else are made by corrupt incompetence who are promoted by faction, not by competence or the efficacy of the policies. Victor Xi at UCSD and uh, in political science and John Tysia of the uh, University of Chicago Economics Department are proponents of that. I have to say that when I was doing Honda's strategy for China, I, I had to deal with the regulators. They were sophisticated, they were open, they were global. I sat down with the guy who was writing the, uh, the new, what was called the new the new auto policy. And he went through two drafts of the policy, paragraph by paragraph. And these interest groups like this one and the other interest groups like that one, uh, you'd never get that degree of openness in Washington. And he said, we can't do it the way the Japanese and the Koreans did it. We can't just exclude the foreigners. We're going to have to have global finance, global styling, global marketing, global technology. Hence, you see Buicks and Volkswagens and Hyundais everywhere you look in, in Chinese cities. So my point is that uh, there's this tremendous division in literature. Division is heavily between people who don't like China very much and are pure academics and people who are on the ground. Now, Michael Enright has been on the ground most of his career. He had six years. He has a, a bachelor's degree. Uh, an MBA and a doctorate from Harvard. He spent six years as a professor at Harvard Business School. Subsequently, he's been the Sun Hung Kai Professor of Business at Hong Kong University. The Academy of International Business characterized him as one of the world's leading strategy gurus. He's also director of a major consulting company. Above all, he's the leading authority on China's development in the Pearl River Delta, which so far has been consistently the the leader in Chinese development. So uh, please please welcome Michael Enright. Thank you, uh, thank you, Bill. What Bill did not indicate was that uh, 20 years ago he was part of a group based in Hong Kong that brought me over to Hong Kong to do a project on how that economy would fare across the transition back to Chinese administration. And as a result of the work that we did there, when I say we, it's not the royal we, but rather my wife and myself, uh, based on the work that we did there as other people were leaving Hong Kong, we actually moved to Hong Kong because we knew that Asia was where the action was and we wanted to be right in the middle of it. And Asia is still, still where the action uh, is today. Today, as indicated, I'm going to discuss this book, uh, Developing China, The Remarkable Impact of Foreign Direct Investment, just out. So check Amazon, Google, and they make great holiday gifts, I, I, I'm told. And the impetus uh, of this uh, project actually was discussions that, that Bill had had and then I had with a foundation based in Hong Kong, uh, the Heinrich Foundation, uh, founded by Merle Heinrich, who's the uh, the owner of uh, Global Sources, or the principal owner of 
Global Sources, which is a major uh, trading, trade fair exhibition, and, and B2B business company. And the idea and the discussions were that, you know, we have a very interesting environment these days for, for foreign investment. Uh, globalization is under fire, not just here in the U.S., but literally everywhere. Europe, Latin America, Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, you name it. And what we're seeing is that the value of trade and investment being uh, increasingly questioned, increasingly nationalistic uh, tendencies and FDI approvals in both OECD countries and developing uh, countries. And foreign companies are facing increasing scrutiny and pressure, be it for tax reasons, for anti-corruption reasons, for environmental sustainability uh, reasons, Basically, they're all under much more pressure today than they were just a, just a few years ago. And I will be very, very broad brush and say, if you look at the works on, on foreign investment in general, they tend to fall into two categories, right? Vast oversimplification uh, for which I, I apologize. Uh, most of the econometric, academic, think tank literature, you know, focuses on directions rather than magnitude. You know, is this variable uh, positively or negatively correlated with foreign investment? And that work is useful, but trying to disentangle the different uh, economic and econometric effects can be difficult. A lot of that work is not accessible to the, the layperson. It turns out that there are often assumptions and interpretations that one really has to question when you get on the ground. I'll come back uh, to that later. And at least in much of the world, a lot of that work hasn't been nearly as influential as one might think. On the other hand, tend to be the work that you see compiled by companies or by governments on how much investment there is. You know, our company uh, invested $2 billion, employs 20,000 people in your country, therefore isn't that a good thing? Or, you know, our country's companies have invested so much, employ so many people, and therefore uh, investment is a good thing without a whole lot of analysis. And again, because it's usually piecemeal partial, that doesn't have as much impact as one might think um, either. And as a result, again, oversimplification, but for the, the sake of getting us going, we find relatively few host governments, and we've worked with about 30 different governments around the world on their foreign investment uh, strategies, but very few host governments have a, a full picture of the impacts, in particular the benefits that foreign investment have brought their economy. Very few companies or source countries have the information, have a full assessment of the impact of their company or companies in order to make the case for foreign investment. And when you see, be it the U.S., Canada, Australia, the EU, uh, you know, when you see the documents that they present in China trying to make their case uh, for the benefits of, of foreign investment, you know, it's pretty, pretty uh, rudimentary. And the policy debates, as a result, are often pretty sterile, take place in sound bites, not just in the U.S., um, although we, we know what's going on here. Uh, and the trouble is that the potential benefits for the host countries for the companies, and actually by extension, the source countries are missing. In other words, we don't get the maximum benefits uh, that, that we should. So as a result, uh, we put together, and actually took several months even to plan uh, the project. Uh, we put together a project to look at these uh, economic impacts on China's economy. 
right? Take one economy first and then work, uh, work on others. Why China as the test case? Well, the obvious reasons, right? It's the largest and most important developing economy. It's one where foreign multinationals have been under a lot of pressure uh, lately. You've seen that in the press. Uh, where foreign investment has been a huge contributor, but it's becoming uh, fashionable in some circles in China and elsewhere uh, to diminish uh, that impact. And increasingly, what we see in the developing world is other governments looking to China and the way China has dealt with foreign investment possibly as a guide uh, for their own practices uh, going forward, often without a full understanding of what those practices uh, really are. So what we've done, and it took 16 months basically to do this, was review uh, the evolution of policy towards foreign investment. I'll describe that uh, in a second. Review all the academic and think tank literature in both English and Chinese, uh, and there are substantial differences uh, between the two. Compile all the facts, the figures, the range of activities of foreign invested enterprises nationally and locally. Do, and I'll come back to it, an economic impact analysis uh, of the investment uh, on China. Develop a series of case studies on the impacts of, of specific companies and also specific locations to try to get a view of the fine-grained, on-the-ground impacts above and beyond what we could quantify. And then we went back and basically redid and extended all of the significant econometric work uh, in well over 100 papers uh, that we reviewed. Now, I'm today going to focus mostly on the headlines and the things that run specifically towards policy, but I'm happy to answer questions about uh, the other parts of, of the project uh, uh, as we have time uh, close to the end. When we look at foreign investment in China, of course, the big question is where is it going? Right? So let me frame that question and then go back through some of the analysis. There are clear warning signs. Uh, foreign companies appear to be targeted with legal and regulatory actions. In some cases, directly, the anti-monopoly law in China explicitly excludes what winds up being the sort of top 1,500 indigenous uh, companies from anti-monopoly or antitrust scrutiny. Sometimes less obviously, uh, yes, foreign companies have been targeted in the anti-corruption drive, but so literally of tens of thousands of local companies. So the case is not so clear there for, for targeting, although some might argue the other, the other point of view. Uh, clearly, we see that support for Chinese companies through the banking sector, development and investment funds, and preferential treatment is increasing. Uh, one of the points, actually, that was valid that Yashin uh, made back in, in the early 2000s was at least through much of the 1990s, in some ways, foreign companies were favored over domestic companies. Those days are dead and buried. And at least over the last 15, uh, 10 uh, to maybe 10 to 12 years, uh, the playing field has been leveled, if not tilted, uh, in the direction of, uh, of the Chinese uh, companies. It's become fashionable, as I said before. The notion in China now is that, quite properly, you know, China's a strong country. China is a very successful country. But what's happening as a result is, you know, people are starting to be a little forgetful. Uh, and starting to think in terms of China either did not, does not, or will not need uh, foreign investment going forward. I'll come back to that. There's also a very strong view that foreign companies stand in the way of Chinese firms, and, that pro and they profit too much at the expense of Chinese companies and consumers. 
And in fact, those of you who have walked down you know, the main streets in central Beijing or central Shanghai and looked at all the stores and looked at all the brands, you know, you could you know, easily conclude that China has been overrun and taken over by the foreigners. Of course, but that's, um, that's only um, part of the story. And then, of course, numerous attacks on foreign companies, even if it's just in the press, uh, serve as a reminder that the foreign invested enterprises operate at the pleasure of the party uh, and the government. Okay? In essence, if you look at the history, you know, it's that foreign investment has been viewed as a necessary evil. And if it's not necessary, what's left? It's evil. Right? And there's an increasing view within China that, Again, oversimplified, um, but sort of uh, reaches that conclusion. However, there are countervailing uh, forces as well. If you look at the uh, draft foreign investment law, uh, which was first circulated in 2015, could be uh, promulgated as early as November of this year, maybe more likely March of, of next year. Uh, this law looks very similar laws that you would see in OECD countries. And in fact, what it does is it largely abolishes for significant categories of investment, not all, but for significant categories of investment, abolishes the need for prior approval in favor of ex-post reporting and moves much more from a sort of command control, you know, get, you know, parents' permission to uh, the same sort of regulatory, administrative, legal oversight of companies that we would be familiar with elsewhere in the world. The question is, of course, how is it going to be enforced? And one interpretation of the fairly aggressive use of some of the new legal tools that China's uh, exhibited over the last couple of years is maybe a bit of legal and administrative overshoot in the early days until they become more comfortable with the notion of managing uh, this process through a legal, regulatory, administrative, rather than an ex-ante control, right? It's one interpretation. And if we look locally, and uh, a little later I'll describe a few cities, many of the local initiatives to take the cities to the next step of their development require uh, additional foreign investment and new types of foreign investment. And increasingly, as Chinese companies look to go international, uh, they're going to need cover, right? Uh, the asymmetry between the rules and regulations for companies going into China, you know, if Chinese companies are going to go out, uh, you know, they're going to have to make adjustments. Otherwise, uh, other countries will make uh, adjustments. So it's uncertain. And it's also uncertain what mix of pragmatism and, the, and ideology will eventuate uh, going forward. So here's the, the backdrop, right? So let me run through some of the, uh, the simple stuff. Many of you would be familiar with this. Again, vast oversimplification of 30 years of very ongoing and in some cases quite sophisticated policymaking. We have to remember, those of us from the West in particular, that you know, foreign investment in the modern China was introduced at the point of a gun, right, uh, in the 19th century. And foreign investment was associated for roughly a century with extraterritoriality, you know, foreigners not being subject to local rules, local regulations, local taxation, and even the rules they were supposed to be subject to, they violated. The flip side 
was that the leading analysts of foreign investment in China at the time claimed that by the end of the 1930s, virtually anything that existed as a modern economy in China was foreign invested enterprise. But there is a unique history, and then, of course, a couple of decades of isolation. One has to understand that history, and that the threat or the specter of foreign domination is always present in the minds of the Chinese leadership. Since the opening process started, it's been step by step by step by step. And at each step, the foreigners have always said, do more, do more, do more. Aren't you silly? Do more because you'll gain benefits. But this sort of overlooked two things. One, well, three things, actually. One was the historical background. The second was the fear of loss of control, uh, in a sense, loss of sovereignty to foreign companies. And the third was that when China started to open to foreign invested enterprises, we have to remember that there was essentially no private sector in China. So China didn't have the legal, administrative, or regulatory apparatus to oversee the domestic private sector, no less the foreign private sector. There wasn't an additional, an existing body of rules, laws, regulations, precedent, practice that could merely be extended to the foreign enterprises. This all had to be done uh, basically from, from ground zero. And so when you understand that, it's not surprising that China took a step-by-step -step approach geographically, first near Hong Kong, in four special economic zones, then in 14 coastal cities, then some of the coastal provinces, et cetera, et cetera. It's also not surprising that it went step by step by sector. First, light manufacturing, export oriented, get foreign exchange stuff, then to other manufacturing, and then uh, towards more sensitive service sectors. And in terms of corporate forms, first contractual joint ventures, then equity joint ventures, wholly foreign owned. Uh, enterprises, and if the uh, current draft foreign investment law is enacted, basically foreign companies will operate basically under the same company's law as uh, Chinese companies, with some exceptions for excluded sectors. Because for China, the policy has always reflected this tension of trying to get the benefits from foreign investment while retaining control, developing indigenous companies, and limiting the influence of foreign MNCs. So what's happened is China opened a little bit. They got a certain type of investment. When they wanted other types of investment, companies weren't willing to put it in, had to open up a little more. They got additional investment, but again, as they wanted higher order, higher value added investment, well, we're not going to do that unless we have ownership. Well, then they had to move a little more, and they had to move a little more. And on the flip side for the companies, the, the history of foreign companies in China dealing with policy has been the evolution of the risk-return trade-off. Initially, a very uncertain, highly controlled uh, access to more knowledge about the markets, more knowledge about dealing uh, with the regulators and administrators, uh, etc. So you have to look at this process as this, this constant tension back and forth. And it's basically a history of mutual discovery and mutual learning. Chinese literature on the, the MNC and FDI impact, I'll just pick this out now, because actually in China, China's one place where the academic and think tank literature does feed into uh, the policy regime for foreign investment. And the vast majority of foreign companies and foreign governments are almost completely ignorant of this literature. 
And the interesting thing here is that this Chinese literature is on average very different from the standard international English language literature that many of us will be uh, familiar with. In part because very little of this literature actually focuses on whether foreign investment is good for China, the way a Westerner would define good. Does it grow GDP? Does it increase consumer welfare? In the papers that we've studied and reviewed, and we've basically gone to the ones that are most influential in the Chinese literature, between three-quarters and four-fifths of these papers focus not on the impact of foreign investment on China, but on the impact of foreign investment on Chinese companies. Is foreign investment good for Chinese companies? And while that might seem a little strange to a Western researcher, if you read all the policy background and the documents, it becomes absolutely consistent because the goal of allowing foreign investment was never primarily to make China wealthy or make Chinese individuals better off. It was to improve the strength of Chinese companies and China's economy so China could stand up economically and in every other way with leading countries around the world. So it's a different objective function, which is very clearly uh, reflected in, in this literature. Another thing is that this literature is, on average, way more negative on the impact of foreign investment than the English language literature. And in part, it's due to uh, researchers trying to second guess what they think others want to hear. And in part, it's because it's become sort of politically incorrect uh, to claim that foreign investment has you know, quite substantial uh, positive impacts. And unfortunately, since a lot of this literature doesn't get into the sort of international refereeing process, you do see many examples of sort of poorly defined variables, uh, incorrect interpretations and assumptions, and just uh, outdated and obsolete statistical uh, techniques. But the important thing for the foreign policymaker or foreign company is that the literature that the Chinese officials see and the think tank people that they talk with are significantly more negative about foreign investment than would be the case in the multilateral agencies and in the international community uh, in general. Okay, again, many of you will be familiar you know, with the facts and figures. I'll just run a few of them through. Uh, in recent years, foreign investment has exceeded uh, annual inflows of foreign direct investment have exceeded 120 billion uh, U.S. dollars in the first seven months of this year is about 77 billion. So, you know, it's sort of leveling off. But this makes China uh, in a given year either first or second uh, in terms of a destination of foreign investment. But one of the critical things is that the vast majority of this investment is still greenfield investment whereas most foreign investment into the OECD countries is merger and acquisition activity, uh, simply buying and selling existing assets rather than putting uh, new assets uh, into the ground. And if we just add up the cumulative uh, value, it's about 1.8 trillion uh, U.S. dollars, uh, which is way more than any uh, other developing economy um, by huge amounts. And hey, 1.8 trillion dollars, yeah, that sounds like a whole lot of money. No, this is just pure addition, no depreciation. And in fact, you know, there are questions. Uh, officially, according to Chinese sources, Hong Kong is the source of 47% of this. Uh, I live in Hong Kong. Well, it ain't all coming from Hong Kong. 
in the old days, the assumption was it was round tripping. Uh, and some estimates of round tripping were as high as 25% back around 1998-99. You can trace virtually all of those estimates to a single paper that picks that number out of thin air with virtually no justification whatsoever. Uh, the more sophisticated analyses at that time indicated round tripping. That's Chinese companies going out and then bringing the money back in to take advantage of the favoritism that foreign invested uh, enterprises got at that time. The more sophisticated analyses back then were about 10%. Over the last 10 years, with the playing field basically leveled or, or more than leveled, uh, that percentage would be even lower. But what happens is a lot of companies from many places in the world make their foreign investments into China, and they deploy that through Hong Kong. Okay? And since Hong Kong makes no effort to estimate where the capital comes from, we really can't trace it back uh, farther than that. So take that with, uh, with a grain of salt. But this is what happens today when you start talking to officials in Beijing and some of the academic uh, institutions and think tanks in China about foreign investment. They say, well, yeah, in absolute values, it looks like a big number. But quite frankly, foreign direct investment as a percentage of gross capital formation peaked at 14% in the early 90s, and it's now uh, roughly 3%. So in essence, it's irrelevant and getting smaller. And if you compare uh, foreign investment with, uh, in this case, fixed asset investment in China, it peaked at about 12% again in the late 90s, and it's now down around 1.5%. So even smaller and even declining more. So you foreigners, what are you doing for us? Right? You're irrelevant. Even if you look at trade, where foreign invested enterprises account for just under 50% of exports and just over 50% of imports, if you take the GDP contribution of that, which is their exports minus their imports, that peaked at 4% of GDP uh, in the middle of the last decade and is now uh, down under 2%. And the, this is the basis of a lot of the discussion when you start talking to people in uh, Beijing or in some of the think tanks and universities in China. But that may not be the whole story. First off, if we look at individual sectors of China's economy, this is just the secondary, basically manufacturing, mining, utilities. What you see is that in some important sectors like computers, foreign invested enterprises are 72% of revenue, 57% of profits, the auto sector, is nearly 50%, etc., etc. And if you take the entire secondary sector, all industries, foreign invested enterprises account for a bit over 20% of assets, sales, profits, and I haven't put it up here, but value added as well. So that's starting to tell us a bit of a different story. Remember, the industrial sector uh, or the secondary sector is about half of China's economy. But there's a bit more that we can add to the mix. My little firm, and also previously, we do a fair amount of what's called economic impact analysis. We did the analysis for what's the impact on Hong Kong's economy of doing a third runway at the Hong Kong airport. And we've done a number of similar studies of individual investments throughout Asia, throughout China, in fact, throughout the world. And there's a fairly well-established set of tools for doing that for an individual investment. Basically, what you do is you take the investment and then the operations that come out of that investment, 
and you take what's called the direct impact, that's the investment, the construction, the support services involved in you know, the financing of that investment, and the sales, the revenue, the activities of the foreign invested, in this case, investment, that's the direct. Then there's a ripple effect through the supply chain, that's the indirect. And then both the direct and indirect uh, companies employ people. Those people get paid salaries. They are consumers. That adds to the economy. That's the induced effect. And everything else, spillovers, technology, management capabilities, etc. let's just throw that into another category called catalytic for the moment. And the tools to do this for a single investment are well established. Google economic impact analysis, very straightforward. But what no one seems to have done before is said, okay, let's take those tools and try to estimate the impact of all foreign investment on an economy. Now, there's a reason why people haven't done it. The reason is that it can be really difficult to eliminate all the double counting of a foreign invested enterprise sourcing from a foreign invested enterprise, which sources from a foreign invested enterprise. Fortunately, we have sufficient data to do those separations. And so what we've done is we've taken these tools and techniques and applied it to foreign investment as a whole on China's economy. Steps, basically straightforward. I can come back to it. You estimate the revenues. You generate the multipliers associated for the indirect induced. You multiply one by the other. You make the adjustments and outcome magically uh, your numbers. And it generates those uh, estimates. Again, well-established techniques. And when we do this for the Chinese economy, this is what we get. What we get is those direct, indirect, and induced impacts of just the capital investment itself. That's this amount. And as a percent of GDP, not surprising, about you know 3% or so, because it's not just the investment, but it's also the ripple effects. You, know, you buy construction materials, you employ people, etc. In the secondary, that's manufacturing, mining, and utilities, remember, just the direct impact was 20% of total secondary impact. Secondary is 50% of the economy, so that's 10% of GDP. If we add in the ripple effects through the supply chain and the employment base, that gives us this. And when we're very conservative about our estimates on the service sector, and since 1995, the service sector has received roughly 50% of all the foreign investment uh, into China. If we're very conservative about our estimates of the relative productivity of local versus foreign service companies, uh, we get this block. And what that adds up to is a third of China's economy. And when you do the same thing on the employment side, it's 27%. And notice, while there's a little bit of a decline in recent years, you know, it's really not fallen off the map. Because what it turns out is these companies that are there and operating generate ongoing economic impacts that are way larger than the initial physical investment that established them in the first place. Just that nobody has dug hard enough and developed the tools sufficient to do the estimates. Now, think about having the policy discussion around this chart as opposed to this chart, or this chart, or this chart. And let's not stop there. These are just the impacts that we can estimate 
by the direct, indirect, induced, just the activities of the firms, their supply chains, and the employees, it doesn't take into account lots of other stuff. And I'll give you just a couple of quick examples. If we look at four uh, individual cities, and I'll go through this quickly, uh, Shenzhen, when we do the same analysis for Shenzhen, just of the secondary sector, even forgetting the services, uh, we get 41% of GDP, 42% of employment. And just the net exports of the foreign invested enterprises are, are 20% of their GDP. And oh, by the way, the main strategy to develop that economy going forward is to integrate more with Hong Kong and attract more um, foreign investment. In Tianjin, uh, the traditional number two manufacturing center in China, the just the secondary uh, sector impact is 22% of GDP at about 15% of employment, and they account for about 60% of Tianjin's trade. And the next step in Tianjin's strategy involves attracting a higher order of foreign investment. And Shanghai, you know, supposedly the leader of the indigenous innovation, you know, the pride of China's economy, foreign invested enterprises account for two-thirds of exports, imports, and gross industrial output, a third of tax revenue and employment. We don't actually have the numbers to do the detailed analysis in Shanghai, but our analysis of other cities would indicate that we're probably talking about 40% of Shanghai's economy. And to give you a fun fact, in 2004, 83% of the high-tech output uh, in Shanghai was by foreign invested enterprises. After 10 years of the push for indigenous innovation, we'll build up our tech sector, I won't even ask you the question of what that percentage was in 2014, because it's 90%. Without the foreign invested enterprises, there would be no tech sector in Shanghai, and if there's no tech sector in Shanghai, there isn't a heck of a lot of one elsewhere in the country. Chongqing, uh, again, I won't even bother. You get the picture. And the next big stage of development in Shanghai is the Shanghai free trade area. In Chongqing, it's attracting more foreign investment. And this is not even taking into account the impact that foreign companies have had on modernizing industries and companies in China, in developing suppliers and distribution networks in China, in bringing research and development. There are more than 1,500 foreign invested R&D uh, facilities in China. And there are well over 100 high-tech spin-offs from foreign invested enterprises just in the main industrial park in Beijing. Not taking into account improving business practices, the fact that the big four basically brought modern accounting standards to China, and that without the seal of approval of the big four and the access provided by international investment banks that the big Chinese companies would never have been able to access global capital markets uh, the way they have, etc., etc., etc. And these are not even included in those estimates that I've mentioned before. And we're starting to go one by one and trying to place values on them. But as you imagine, some of the values here are really big. You know, what's the value of access of Chinese firms to international capital markets? It's trillions of dollars. And I'll give you just one company example. Procter & Gamble uh, has been in China since uh, the mid-80s. They created entire product categories. They introduced disposable diapers into China. They introduced actually modern dental hygiene to some parts of rural uh, China. They went in and developed their own supply chains for virtually everything, put those new Chinese suppliers into their global uh, production networks, and in many cases, those suppliers now export on their own to other uh, companies. 
P&G built over 10,000 distributors in China, and in fact, for their first couple of years, shadowed them, uh, ran the, you know, even kept their books and provided financing uh, to keep them uh, afloat. They helped bring uh, green standards. They, along with the Unilevers and others, brought modern advertising to China, etc., etc., etc. In terms of human resources, Procter & Gamble is a net exporter of managerial talent from China. There are far more Chinese working in P&G senior management roles outside of China than there are expats uh, in P&G working in China. And when we take publicly available figures for P&G's investment, their sales, and the retailer wholesaler markup of those sales in China, which are these numbers, what we get is on an annual basis, P&G is adding about $11 billion in GDP to China's economy. And even though P&G itself employs about 20,000 people, if you work through the entire wholesale retail distribution chain that supported the number of jobs supported by P&G sales, you work through the supply networks, the whole system employs about 600,000 people. P&G's official literature says, we've invested $2.5 billion in China, we employ 18,000. And they're one of the more sophisticated companies. I'll just skip over the others in, in the interest of time, but basically we've got tons of other uh, examples uh, like that. And I'll go right to the implications in, in the interest of time. First off for China. China's benefited more from FDI than, than any other country in the world by a wide margin. And one of the reasons is because they've managed it in a step-by-step, -step, very careful process. Could they have gotten more by opening earlier and more completely? Probably, but it's actually hard to argue with what they got. They've not lost sovereignty. They've not lost control. Their administrative capacities have increased. Uh, other countries, you know, fine. Even in China, if we think going forward, they may have been successful so far. But what's becoming clear is if you look at the latest five-year program, there is no way that Chinese companies can deliver in all the areas that are high-priority areas. They're going to need foreign investment to do it. They're going to need to continue to have the input from the foreign companies in order to make the next step, the next step, the next step, because in the future, just as in the past, it's often impossible to figure out where all the growth is going to come from and what ideas you're going to need and what combinations of resources and access to global financial markets, product markets, uh, you're going to need in order to succeed. For other countries, basically, that are questioning, particularly countries like India, so what's the biggest difference between China's economy and India's economy? Well, one big difference is the extent to which China opened up to foreign investment and India never really did. The investment can make huge contributions. There's a vast range of additional impacts that we haven't even been able to estimate yet. It can be managed to gain the upsides. And yeah, China might be an outlier, economic size, administrative capacity, ability to bargain against the foreign players. But there's a lot in this for other countries um, as well. And oh, by the way, the same set of tools that we've developed to look at foreign investment in China, we can use in virtually any other country. And we're starting to work with countries to do so. And what about for the multinationals, the source countries, uh, chambers of commerce, business groups? Well, lots of pressure on them. But many of these companies, governments, that are charged with the responsibility of making their case are doing so with woefully incomplete information. And the tools exist to build much, much more sophisticated arguments. 
And we're starting actually to work with some companies, not just on the type of uh, quantifiable analysis we've already shown, but in addition, trying to put uh, quantification around some of the CSR, environmental, R&D investments that they're making as well. Because increasingly, they're going to have to make their case if they're going to be viewed as necessary rather than as evil. Again, just that this can be done pretty much in uh, a wide range of countries. And let me stop here uh, to open it up for any questions and comments. Thank you. Mike, let, let me lead off with a couple of questions. The foreign chambers of commerce, Japanese, European, American, are all very upset right now. They're complaining like mad. Their companies are still investing, except the Japanese, and declining sharply. My first question is, do you have a view on how that's going to work out? The rhetoric and the behavior going to continue to diverge, or are we going to see some... Uh, both go in one direction or the other. Second question is how locals are going to manage. In the days when they were starting to try to make machine tools, they would import the most modern equipment and it would sit around. The workers would smoke and laugh and they'd buy three machines and two would be cannibalized and they didn't know how to manage it. Foreign investment help them. Now are we going to see the same thing with biotech? Some company, some Chinese companies are buying the latest gadgets, don't know how to use it. It sits around on the floor the way the machine tools did in the old, old days. So how are the foreigners going to behave? How are the locals going to behave? Okay. Um, to take the questions uh, in order, if we fail in getting the message of this work through, uh, then I would expect that the rhetoric around foreign investment between the foreign companies, chambers of commerce, and Chinese government is going to continue on the same trajectory and is going to be more confrontational in the future than in the past. And what both sides sort of don't recognize is that the other has a completely different objective function. I think the Chinese actually recognize it more than the companies do. The companies think this is for the good of China. And China says, well, who are you to decide what's for the good of China? We've decided what's for the good of China is to have Chinese companies be dominant in all these things. Um, so what I see there is just a, a ramp up of, of the rhetoric and potentially uh, moves in other countries to restrict Chinese investment on a quid pro quo basis. And we could wind up with a mess. Um, what I'm hoping is that both sides will see, hey, wait a minute, there's huge value to be had here. This can be administered. It can be managed. China can get the investment it wants. The best way to build high-tech companies in China is to allow as many foreign companies as possible in and then have the spillovers and the spin-offs and the local startups develop the indigenous tech sector. That's already what's happening. And in fact, the move to sort of push foreign companies to share intellectual property to restrict their activities has resulted in a reduction of that and actually a reduction in the pace of tech startups in China. But what both sides have to see is the mutual benefit involved. They have to understand the mutual objective functions or the other side's objective functions and work with it. 
that's one of the things we're hoping to do uh, with with this work. Uh, in terms of the, you know, will the will the gene sequencers sit idle? No, they're not going to sit idle. Uh, in fact, these days, uh, in many sectors, the Chinese companies are just way, way better than they used to be. In the most advanced sectors, and I don't just mean technologically advanced, but I mean managerially complex, the winning combination today is still the global multinational company working with the Chinese workforce. That combination where it can be brought to bear is really competitive, which means that as foreign companies move more of their activities to China, if they can pull it off and manage the process, they have some distinct advantages. But uh, increasingly across sectors, including the most advanced, um, the Chinese companies are becoming way more capable uh, than, than they once were. And so there'll be a lag, and the best way is to invite all the biotech companies in and then see what spills over into the local environment and then use foreign capital to build their local uh, companies. Um, but that's also a sector where the uh, the IP uh, issues become quite quite prominent, because while foreign companies may have difficulty with IP in China, Chinese companies have even worse experiences because they don't even have a domestic market in which they can get their IP respected in order to build a position in order to to go international. So there are other things in play in terms of. IP protection, a lot of individual initiative now, but the gene sequencers and related stuff won't won't sit idle. Uh, they'll be used. Why don't you field the questions yes, yourself? Yes, please. Uh, first in the back. If I were a random country in the world and you know was thinking about my foreign direct investment opportunities, it seems like one of the main takeaways of this discussion is that more is going to actually better support my economy long run. Are there parameters, contractual parameters, that countries should, from the outset when they're first getting into this business, first getting into this type of investment, uh, impose on companies coming in that will maximize the benefits to their economy, or should it be as free as possible in those early days? Yeah, it, it will depend uh, country by country, because uh, the key thing is whether countries have the administrative capacity to adjudicate fairly. Our experience is that countries become interventionists not when they have strong governments, but when they have weak governments. And there are many examples around the world where no matter what the contracts are, that uh, the local uh, governments and administrative capacities are just not up to managing the process, either because they lack the administrative capacity or corruption or, or, or other means. So in essence, the control regime, in a sense, has to be matched to where the country is at its particular stage in development and its administrative capacity. And that argues perhaps towards a more controlling environment early and then more flexibility subsequently. That, of course, runs into the objective function of the multinationals. In other words, what China did was to go just as far as it needed to to get the next bit of investment. And then, you know, when it got contractual joint ventures, that was okay, but it wasn't committed capital on the ground. So they had to allow the equity joint ventures. And then nobody was really willing to put their IP and their sophisticated stuff into China without wholly uh, foreign ownership. So then they did the, the wholly owned. 
And then, well, companies weren't putting sophisticated systems, managerial processes, and finances into China in the absence of the ability to do a holding company. So now they do the holding company. So it's really a matter of assessing what the capacity is uh, locally uh, and getting multilateral assistance if necessary to help on that, because that's available. Then doing the contractual deals that are appropriate to that level of development, economic and administrative, but having to understand it's a bargain, and if you get no investment, then you got to expand your horizons, right? You got to give a, a, a bit more. We're recording this session, so if you could speak into the microphone. For example, I mean, a lot of the benefits listed that she has brought to China, for example, is pretty well aligned with what it, what the trade policy is going for, bringing in expertise and advancements, um, skills, etc. So, I guess we talk a little more about why why you think the Chinese scholarship is missing it. Is it just a question of which which firms are sort of showing up in the rankings, or why are they not seeing that the policy is actually Okay. Um, and yeah, surprise, surprise, P&G is doing a lot of things that the Chinese government would like to see. In part, it's just doing good business. I mean, for them, developing suppliers in China was essential to their economics in China, uh, developing distributors in China. And they're actually doing that in conjunction with the Chinese government that wants an improved distribution system. But hey, an improved distribution system is a conduit for P&G sales. So this is enlightened self-interest. Right on, on, on both sides. Um, but it's not surprising that some of the CSR efforts, the disaster relief, other things, you know, they're not stupid. And in fact, this is true in, in countries around the world. You know, companies will try to align uh, what they do uh, to what they perceive as the interests of, of the economy. Um, with respect to the, the Chinese literature, it's not just the Chinese literature. It's, it's the entire literature. Um, there's no English literature that that does this either. In fact, the only company that we found that has done what we considered a complete and sophisticated analysis of their presence in China was done by Coca-Cola in 1999, and they haven't updated it yet. So it's not just the Chinese literature. It's the fact that the people who look at foreign investment and who understand you know, the econometric tools to do that generally are economists who never have set foot in a company. They don't know what drives the companies. They don't see physically what the spillovers are. And if you try to tease out the spillovers, you've got a limited data set to do it. If you try to do it on a national level, you're talking about 1979 to 2016, in a world that has completely changed over the time period, so you can't assume the relationships are stable. And if you can try to, uh, what most of the analysis does, which is try to compare across provinces within China, well, okay, then you have panel data, 1979 to 2014 or so, you know, 31 provinces, etc. It's still not particularly large samples and very imperfect proxies uh, for the, the underlying data. You know, the only, for example, you know, technological innovation, you know, the data that tends to be used is patent counts, which is a really poor, I mean, I used to be a research scientist in a prior life. It's actually an incredibly poor 
measure of technological progress, particularly in an economy that's, that has gone through the stages of development that China has. So it's a combination of things. It's that you know, the people who have the analytical tools usually don't have a clue what's going on in the ground. There's a paper that we read, which was marvelous. The paper was on the impact of foreign investment on Guangdong province. And they go through all the econometric mumbo jumbo, up, down, et cetera, et cetera. And they find out that foreign investment had a negative impact on the development of Guangdong province. It's like, yeah, right. You know, over 50% of Guangdong province is foreign companies and their supply chains. But if you try to do year-on-year -year growth rates and you get the lag structure wrong, do the thought experiment. Let's assume that all foreign investment goes in in even years and it takes a year to ramp up the factory. So you get the big output in the following year. What would that look like in an econometric analysis? It would be a perfect negative correlation between foreign investment going in and GDP coming out. So you really have to work at understanding the appropriate lag structures, and you have to do that almost sector by sector, and that requires people who understand what it is to go in and kick the tires, as well as have all the econometric tools. Some of the work on the econometric side uh, uses outdated techniques, assuming that all trends are linear. Well, not all trends are linear. And you can test whether the appropriate detrending is linear or not. But a lot of the literature doesn't do so. It's fairly sophisticated on the econometric side. So there are all sorts of reasons, um, which one sees in other aspects of you know, economic and, and business research as well, which is why one of the things that, that I like to do is go the whole gamut. Yeah, understand all the econometric stuff, but actually go to the cities and see what, what's going on. Go into the companies, see what those impacts are. Because a lot of the things that are interesting are things that are difficult or impossible to properly quantify unless you really, really, really understand uh, under the hood what's going on. Yes? Uh, related to when the inflow of foreign direct investment began, it was around the early 80s, mid 80s. Uh, what specifically happened to catalyze that that inflow of foreign direct investment, and who uh, who were the market entrants that sort of uh, were the early adopters or the ones who first kind of uh, jumped into the game? What was the what were the characteristics of those uh, sources of capital? Okay, the initial opening of China took place 1979, 1980, and what happened was four special economic zones were designated. One in Shenzhen, one in Zhuhai, one in Shantou, and one in Shaman, right? That's the fourth. And uh, three in Guangdong province, one in Fujian province, uh, two, one near Hong Kong, one near Macau, Shaman opposite uh, Taiwan. And any investment in there basically couldn't sell to the domestic market. It basically had to be for export. So you got light manufacturing export industries, um, mostly from Hong Kong and Taiwan. Surprise, surprise. That's where the companies uh, were adjacent. They were also facing cost pressure. And what, you know, basically it allowed them to do is access cheap labor with limited investment. The only form allowed was contractual joint venture. Basically, you sign a contract. You have no long-term equity stake. So light manufacturing exports the initial. Then, as that started taking off, they started learning how to administer, and it was, again, almost all Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan. Then, as that started succeeding, they realized they needed the infrastructure to take the next step. 
And so again, mostly Hong Kong Taiwanese firms came in in those areas and started building up the infrastructure. Then it was like, okay, this is starting to work. So China expanded and opened up 14 cities to foreign investment with similar restrictions on ownership, a similar requirement to export, etc. And again, that got them more in, but uh, again, limited in sector, limited in type. And then as that became, so then, you know, that's 1990s, and then you had a bunch of places opened up. So it's been gradual, and so the waves of investment have followed changes, you know, really substantial step changes in the legal, regulatory, administrative regime. But at the same time, those also coincided with sort of stages of development in the foreign companies in terms of their knowledge of China, the developments of the markets, uh, the, the riskiness or the perceived riskiness uh, of their investments. Yes, here and then here. So as China's economy has been slowing down, China's been getting a lot of advice about Focusing on exports to the domestic market and having its growth mostly be driven by internal consumers. To what extent is that happening? And to the extent that it happens, what will that mean for foreign direct investment and the kinds of foreign direct investment that China will see? The corollary to that, as um, Chinese labor costs have been grinding, and uh, the advantage that China initially had with its low labor costs is now drifting to Vietnam and other places. What is that doing again to the nature of the kinds of foreign direct investment that China is experiencing, and what does this portend? Okay, um, again, um, more excellent questions. With respect to advice for China to rely uh, less on exports, it's not just advice, it's economic necessity. Basically, in the years that China was growing at roughly 11% a year, roughly 3% of that was consumption investment, uh, consumption growth, about 4% was investment growth, and another 3% plus was net export growth. So it happened with the onset of, of uh, the global financial crisis, and subsequent to that, uh, world trade is slow. So basically, to a first approximation, you took off 3% of China's growth, which basically knocked it down to the 7-plus seven, seven range, which we see persisting to today. So it's not just you know, advice. It's just if the global markets aren't growing, well, then you're not going to get your growth there. The other thing, of course, is that over the preceding years, China had been gaining share against other exporters. And in many sectors, you know, China's saturated out. You know, it is the, the producer. So it's hard to gain share. So they're more or less stuck in many ways on the trade side to growth of global trade going forward. So regardless of advice, it's just economic necessity reality. The slowdown costs, it's sort of a, a bit of a countervailing factor. Costs, yes, are increasing, in part due to natural phenomena. Natural phenomena, that's a good thing, right? You want your people employed at, at higher wages. As long as it's a market and, and China doesn't have the sort of uh, safety net that means you've got lots and lots of people unemployed, uh, right? So when China's you know, wages go up, you know, people are still employed, that's a good thing. 
So higher value added activities are, are pushing out lower value activities. Uh, and many of the export industries today, the issue is not even so much labor cost as labor availability. Because the labor that used to come to the coastal provinces to work in the assembly manufacturing, now many of those people will be going uh, on in school. Uh, they might be working in the service sector uh, back at home rather than in, in moving uh, to the coast. So what we are seeing is we are seeing an adjustment. It's a quite natural adjustment. It will take time, though, because you can't just tell people, you know, consume and expect that they're going to consume tomorrow. They consume in China like anywhere else. As their incomes rise, they buy in new categories and expand demand in others. But you can't really accelerate that beyond uh, the point of, uh, of where income growth uh, is going. So that will be a gradual process. You know, it's, again, people advising them to do it. It's like, it's going to happen, right? You can try to fight it. You can go with it. And in fact, they're trying to go with it. We've had um, six different provinces and 12 different major Chinese cities come to us to ask, how do you grow the service sector? And the trouble is, the vast majority of the service sector is derived demand, right? How do you grow the retail sector? Well, you get wealthier people locally, and you uh, facilitate distribution, and you eliminate restrictions on retail. But it's hard to grow it like you would, you know, a standalone manufacturing enclave. And in fact, the only services the cities are good at growing are things that are like that. Uh, BPO, ITO, you know, outsourcing that looks like a manufacturing, right, export. But it, it'll happen. But it'll happen with the incomes. And the thing is to facilitate it. The big change is whether or not the government can wean itself off of reliance on investment. Because investment government can control. Right, because a lot of it comes from state banks, state firms. In fact, in 2008 at the Apex CEO Summit, I had the speaking slot right after Hu Jintao. And after my talk, I was asked by the moderator. First question was, what did you think of President Hu's talk? Oh, of course, a wonderful talk, right? And the second question was, do you think China's stimulus package will work? Because it had just been announced two weeks earlier. And I said, doesn't matter. And he almost dropped the microphone. And I said, it doesn't matter if the first stimulus package doesn't work. Because if the first one doesn't work, there'll be a second. And if that doesn't work, there'll be a third. And at that time, China was sitting on international reserves equal to 40% of GDP. For three to five years, you can go do whatever the heck you want. Well, they did. And now they're going to have to unwind it. So now what they need to do is they need to wean themselves off of the knee-jerk reaction to gin up growth through slamming down the infrastructure and construction lever. And that's going to be the challenge. Can, can they save themselves from their selves, from themselves? Because so far they've been able to manage it. But if they keep on the same pace, you know, it's going to be very difficult eventually to, to finance uh, the overhang. Right? There's still a lot of construction that can be done, should be done. There's still a lot of infrastructure that's very productive. But now they've got to really be careful. And the key thing is the evolution will happen naturally if they identify and break down the barriers to it happening. Yes, over here, and then over here, and then over here. And then that'll be it, okay. It seems that right now, China's in pursuit of uh, foreign technology is a recent purchase of ASDA in Germany. I wonder how does that influence their policy and FBI possibly? And also, it seems the restrictions on 
in uh, technology sector has actually helped China grow a pretty strong domestic technology sector. If you look at the absence of Google, Uber leaving the country, you could talk about that a bit. Okay. Uh, first off, um, one of China's goals is to be a leader uh, in technology. And that means acquiring technology wherever it exists. But what's interesting, if one reads the details of their programs and plans in this regard, it's basically scour the world for technology and, and technology providers and not so much collaborate with those players, but rather grab it and bring it back to China. And a lot of what you will see as you know, technology mergers and acquisitions are, will be attempts, in some cases by companies that are recognizable like companies anywhere, but some of them will be very specifically supported by the state in order to obtain uh, cutting-edge technologies that either are viewed, of, uh, viewed as strategic importance to the economy or are viewed as too expensive to be uh, in the hands of foreigners. Okay? So that's one whole piece of the puzzle. And the goal of supporting the indigenous tech sector is certainly there. To a certain extent, Japan did that in the tech sector. I right? closed off the foreigners and developed an indigenous one. Uh, they do have some very profitable companies um, because in some, if you're at Alibaba, you're protected from foreign competition. You can be insanely profitable if you dominate the, uh, you know, the online marketplace uh, in China. And they have and they will develop strong tech companies. And maybe they will do so better uh, blocking the foreign companies than, than not. Foreign tech companies haven't been that good in China. eBay was there and, and basically they died a horrendous death, uh, not because of the Chinese government, just they got outcompeted in, in the marketplace. Um, but that will be part of it. And China is trying to create its own internet, its own global payment system, et cetera, et cetera. And they're able to do it because they're big. Is it economically efficient? Maybe, maybe not. They view it as strategically important. But another piece of the puzzle, which was sort of half alluded to in your question, is that we also see that in technologies that are important to China's future, where at least in the short to medium term, it's not really foreseeable that Chinese companies can be major players, those areas are wide open uh, to foreign companies. So people who have energy efficient technologies, sustainable technologies, the door is wide open today. So that's, you know, that's part of the flip side, right? It's part of making the case, showing that you have what's needed. Quickly, I think we had here and then back here, right? Already addressed? Last question? I have a question about uh, uh, the aggressiveness of the state banks, the banks in China, because I do understand uh, the education of demand uh, in terms of domestic consumer demand. However, I think from the point uh, investors' perspective, I think that because the state banks is very aggressive, and then therefore the entry price in terms of investment is very high. And it, from the uh, foreign banks' perspective, the interest rate in China is very low. And how do you think about their state, state banks' like, uh, uh, aggressiveness in terms of financing projects in, in domestic, domestically in China? Okay, the state banks in China are, um, they're both aggressive and, and not aggressive. They've historically been aggressive in financing uh, projects mooted by or favored by central, provincial, or local governments, and it's been almost impossible to get them to finance private sector 
development. And today, that's, that's still the case. So the issue with, with the banking sector as a whole in China is that it is still, you know, the four big banks are still, you know, 50% of the banking sector, and the banking sector is still something like 80% of the capital uh, deployed in China. Uh, the issue in the financial sector is not the aggressiveness of the state banks. It's the matter that they have loaned preferentially to government-favored projects, which are not necessarily the ones with the best economic returns. And the segment of the economy that has been growing most rapidly and providing the most new jobs is exactly the sector that has been starved of funding um, by the state banks. And that's why we've seen the emergence of uh, shadow financing, special purpose vehicles, trusts, etc., as a way to try to bypass uh, the policies of the state banks and funnel financing into, uh, into the private sector. The trouble is that that sector is not wholly, but at least partially unregulated, and the, uh, the risk assessments are not uh, all that professional, and therefore it's quite, uh, quite risky. But the issue in finance in China is not so much the aggressiveness of the state banks. It's that the um, financing is still not viewed as a way to allocate financial resources to the most economically efficient uses. Rather, the state banks are still viewed primarily as dispersers of funds uh, to enhance state objectives. And until that changes, that will be a drag on China's economy. Thank you, Michael. Um, hope everybody will join me in expressing our appreciation for a great lecture.